0: Hello my friends out there in podcast land, my fellow podcastians, I hope you're all well. It's Was here with the Master of None podcast. It's been a little while since I've uh, popped a, an episode into the airwaves, so I'm sorry if you've been waiting. Uh, hopefully that has given you the chance to check out Fly on the Wall podcast, uh, which is the other project going on with uh, myself and Hero, Luke, my friend, my best mate. Uh, hopefully you've had an opportunity to check that out as well and been enjoying it. That's been a weekly thing. And I think perhaps just having that, uh, that opportunity to have the chat and the podcast in, in the, the form of a podcast has kind of let the poor old master of none get put by the wayside. So don't worry. Definitely, definitely not forgotten about. I hope everyone's been well this, uh, well, it's winter here. Uh, other parts of the world, of course, are experiencing all their different kinds of weather we're having some really short days it 's currently just after five and very close to dark it 's a very disconcerting time of year for for me i like I like daylight savings I like those late evenings when the sun's out and the, the sunset seems to take a long time to to come about but hey there's a nice there's nice things about every time of year, and this is a nice time of year too. Enjoy getting cosy and, and watching movies and some TV series that you're going to catch up on. Doing some indoor hobbies, outdoor hobbies if you don't mind the, the cold and the rain. And yeah, maybe some of those more settled kind of things that we'd like to do. Uh, I'm off on a little bit of a, a holiday this week, so that's going to be great. It's a little break from the, the winter weather and a little bit of a change from the norm for myself. Um, so looking forward to that as well. But I hope everyone's got something good going on in their life at the moment, uh, whether it's something small or something massive that you're working on or that you've been part of. And yeah, I hope it's bringing you some joy and uh, yeah, I guess some inner peace, (laughs) not to sound too grandiose about it, but yeah, hopefully it is something that you're thoroughly enjoying. So I was uh, projected forward a couple of episodes ago about this episode, episode 13 being part two of the horror series and say series that's also perhaps talking it up a bit too but it's uh it's part two of that of that chat because um, you know it's a, a huge genre and there's so many subgenres. it could be something the whole podcast could be about just picking through horror movies and, and going through all the nitty-gritty but it was just, uh, I had a talk about some key ones, mainly from my, my older brother who suggested the, the genre to talk about. Also Eero, uh, because I asked him his favourites that I could also mention, and then a couple of my own. And so that, was, that took up the whole time, because <laughs> I know how to talk. Um, so I felt that perhaps just to be able to cover a few more and, and put, yeah, slip a few more under that banner, that there would be a part two and this is it so welcome and you know good old lucky 13 for the theme i think that works nicely hope you've had a chance to listen to some of the past episodes last episode sort of covered a few urban related themes like urban exploration urban decay and you know related interests, I guess. Uh, parkour, which was a free running at the time, I couldn't, couldn't think of the, uh, the proper term for it. So, parkour, of course, uh, is the term. And, of course, Dero Dero picked me up on that and I appreciated it. So, yeah, parkour. <laughs> My brain doesn't work at the best of times, but it seems that when I'm doing the podcast, I, I forget all of those key, key terms, key words, and some of the the actual things that I was going to mention. So bear with me, I, you know, I'll get there in the end. So today I was thinking about and this is something I probably got a little bit caught up on as well. I had done a couple of kind of takes if you will of this of this particular episode and had a bit of a hard time getting to keep it and then upload it. So it's been something perhaps that's held me back from getting the second installment done and I needed to give myself a kick in the pants to uh, make sure that it was going to be something that could happen, excuse me, I just had to toot my horn at someone who hadn't noticed the lights, here we go, and yeah, so it was something that I guess I've talked through it a couple of times, and it's given me a chance to reflect on the movies that I did mention, and also I guess have a bit of a think about uh, why I brought those particular movies up, and... A little bit about what they mean to me and perhaps even reflect on how many horrors I have actually in fact seen. I feel like I'm a fan of horrors but I also don't feel like I've devoured uh, you know tens and tens, dozens and dozens of horror movies. I think there was probably a period in my, in my 20s perhaps my early and mid-thirties, where that's where I really did enjoy the horror genre. It was nothing I was really into heavily when I was a teenager. It was very much into, oh, like, historical stuff, or, like, fantasy stuff, or, like, sci-fi particularly. Um, but horror was probably not something I really uh, chose to watch a lot of. Something that really came up more as an adult. And, yeah, so I, I never really saw some of those classic... Uh, what you would say is a classic slasher movie from the 80s and uh, even into the 90s. You've got The Scream and you, you, The Scream series and you go all the way back to Halloween, Friday the 13th, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, the, all of the, the, the zombie series by George A. Romero, which is so, Night of the Living Dead and then Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, then, of course, Land of the Dead, which came out really well, still about 15 years ago now, but uh, a late instalment to that series, and I've never really seen many of them. I think I've perhaps seen the original Halloween, I think I've perhaps seen one of the Friday the 13ths, and I've seen maybe one or two of the Nightmare on Elm Street, but I saw the remake of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, and I've certainly seen the remakes or reboots of numerous other movies, and I think that that's perhaps the key factor where I've, uh, I've come into it. And perhaps where my interest is, has lay is, is in some of these updates that we've received in the last, say, 20 years. And that's been uh, The Hills Have Eyes, the Quarantine uh, movies, although I've only actually seen the original one. Uh, there's a movie called Martyrs, which is a French movie. Now, I don't think that's a remake, but that's one that I'm, I'm going to talk about. Also, the Dawn of the Dead remake from 2004, which was uh, Eli Roth. That was something that put him on the map. I th- not Eli Roth, was it? it? Zack Snyder, what am I talking about? Eli Roth did the... Uh, now I can't think of the, the name of the series. Hostel. He did the Hostel one, that's right. So I was, I was thinking, but please bear with me. <laughs> we'll get there in the end. You can congratulate me at the end for getting through it. So, they're some of the movies that I was going to sort of focus on and feature tonight because I feel that's where I had my horror kind of renaissance, if you like, where I really started to see a lot more and and enjoy them a lot more, maybe because that was just the ripe time to enjoy them and something about the remakes kind of captured something at that point my age perhaps what I wanted to see, the kind of tone that they were able to, to evoke. So we'll start with Dawn of the Dead, and that's probably one that was fairly early on in the piece, and that's one that I saw uh, several times at the, at the cinema, which is rare for me as well. Uh, Event Horizon was something in the late 90s where you could say that was a great crossover um, for, for sci-fi and horror bit of a, an interesting blend of sci-fi and horror and also a blend or kind of homage or you could say a rip-off <laughs> of several other movies as well and, and probably the strongest being say The Shining mixing it with a, an Aliens kind of feel as well and that was probably right at the start so I might come back to Dawn of the Dead so uh, the late 90s there was Event Horizon and that had Lawrence Fishburne starring, I think there was also Sean Pertwee, that's John Pertwee's son, one of the Doctor Whos, and a couple of other, I wouldn't say they were big, no, Sam Neill, of course. And then there were some other stars, which are actually fairly recognisable um, by today's standards, looking back at some of the police procedural shows and things that are on TV, their faces pop up often, I just can't think of their names at this point. But um, it was a bit of a... It was a middle-of-the-road kind of budget movie, and it was by, I'm fairly sure, the same director of uh, Resident Evil, and he sort of became you know the, the main helmer of all the Resident Evil movies, and that's kind of what he's known for. Was it the Underworld movies? Here we go. This is the realm of confusion that I, <laughs> that I live in. Um, and I really, I really liked it. I liked the fact that the, there was a very gothic design to the spacecraft, and that actually was called the Event Horizon. There is uh, a mission basically. They've got a distress signal sent from a ship that was, uh, its purpose was to explore the far reaches of the universe using technology that they'd, that the Sam Neill character had devised, which effectively created a small black hole. Pardon me. Small black hole that created a, a loophole in space and time so they could instantaneously. Transport the themselves in the ship from one side of the universe to the other. Um, therefore, solving I guess the the old issue of uh, how do we propel ourselves to the stars. So it was a good idea, I suppose, in in theory, and it, it gave I guess an opening to well, what what happens if it goes wrong. What happens if it kind of tears the fabric of space and time? And I think without getting too Elaborate. It's stuck with a fairly simple concept that ultimately the ship has taken itself out of the known universe and essentially into another dimension and one of pure chaos and evil. And you never really see what goes on within that realm. You just see the result of it, which is either people come back and they're completely messed up They don't come back at all. Or the brief uh, warning video that they find on the bridge of the ship is basically just a gore fest. (laughs) And I think it was actually a a much longer video, but it had to be cut heavily to avoid getting an R rating or an X rating in the US. So there's a a sort of a quick hint of this pretty feral video of the crew doing all sorts of crazy stuff to each other and... um, yeah, of course they're all dead. <laughs> and they basically find the ship in the lower orbit of Neptune, which is also a fantastic uh, moody, kind of evocative area for this for this ship to be sitting, because when they arrive there, it's, uh, it's this sort of electrical storms, it's sort of sitting in this low blue kind of mass of cloud or gas, and it just looks really spooky. Some kind of funny things that, that really do kind of emphasise its B-grade level of the approach is that it's got its name emblazoned across the front of the ship with kind of spotlights on it, like it's some kind of fair ride or like a bus that goes to Piccadilly. Um, not sure why a spacecraft would need its name sort of printed across the front with the spotties on it, but it's just a, a kind of a, a quirky little addition to it that makes it you just go and have a bit of a chuckle about it and think that's quite funny. But other than that, it's actually a really cool ship design. And on that alone, it's very effective. It's, it's another character in the movie. And uh, the way that it's been laid out kind of explains a few things that happen later on in the movie as well. So I think on the whole, the performances are, are really good. I mean, Sam Neill is, is always good. He's a consistently good actor, um, no matter really what he's in. He, is a, he just has a, a nice charisma about him and a nice warmth. And there's a few changes within his character because he's experienced some trauma. So the ship, or the, the entity that has taken the ship, uh, brings back these feelings, memories and dreams within each of the crew members. And you sort of experience it from their point of view when they're alone or uh, I guess other things are going on. And they've all experienced some kind of trauma or um, loss in their life, and it's sort of revealed to them in through these visions. (coughs) And they're quite, (coughs) excuse me, they're quite scary as well. So it's it's really it's quite a spooky film. It kind of gets into your uh, into your psyche a little bit. And I remember being quite uh, kind of nervous coming out of the the movies and feeling a little bit jumpy. I was probably about 19, 20, and maybe I was at that age where I was very susceptible to it. But look, it was a very effective movie. I went and saw that, I think, three times at the movies, and each time it was as effective. So that one, if you've never watched it, it's worth it if you're a bit of a sci-fi buff, or if you enjoy a little bit of B-grade kind of horror, or even if you just like those main stars. It's worth the look because it is a bit of a classic now. One of those movies that maybe at the time was you know moderately received by critics and audience alike, but I think has become one of those movies that people go, oh, have you seen Event horizon Yeah, that's a great movie. Um, and it's just looked upon fondly. So that was probably one of my earlier experiences in just watching movie, a movie and really liking it that, that would fall into the horror genre. And then I think there's probably a few years where... Uh, I probably saw the Blair Witch Project, and that was one which I really hold dear. I I found that to be terrifying. I think because it is so lo-fi, it is believable in the fact that you never see, ultimately, what the danger is. It's it's all in your mind. It's all suggested uh, through the way that it's been made. And it was made on a shoestring budget, out in the woods um, on pretty low fi equipment. So they've got a few cameras, they take some, uh, film students take uh, some equipment out into the, the, the Blair, oh, I forget the name of the woods actually, but they go out into the forest to sort of research some of the old stories that they've heard and some of the folklore from the local area and disappearances over time. And and basically, they just want to talk about it, make a little bit of a documentary feature. And through the making of their little documentary movie, they become slowly disorientated and lost in the forest. And that sort of unfolds uh, as they film it. So it's a found footage uh, style movie. I guess one of the first. I think there probably were... Movies that were their, their root source, um, but that one definitely made it something that became mainstream, and there were many that followed the Blair Witch's success, and but it's very effective. The way that it's put together, the way that different characters are carrying some of the different camera, uh, the different cameras that they have, so it's it sort of it's able to be pieced together and edited in a way where the story is told like that, and that's really effective and there's, I think the performances they were able to capture from the, the guys that were in it were excellent. I'm not sure if they were already studying to be actors or if they were fairly new to it, but they managed to, I think, get them on a, a bit of a, a, a raw nerves, uh, edgy kind of mood by some of the tactics that they use, the directors and the producer of the movie. And we're able to get these quite realistic, quite raw performances from them, and that was very effective as well. It definitely makes the whole thing more believable. So basically, the mysterious things start to happen, and through some of the threads that you've heard uh, about, the you know the rumours and the mythology behind the Blair Witch, they start to, you of course, assume that it's something to do with the witch. There are little cans of stones that they find. There are these stick, uh, kind of figures puppets hanging from trees in the woods it's all very spooky it seems very ritualistic and you start to wonder what the hell is going on and, and what's going to happen to them because the the more that they get lost they start to really start you know freak out get a little despondent but also freak out and the night times are the worst where there's just so many question marks on what's out in the woods what's around us what's watching us and that's one where the end I won't actually mention it because I think that it was a really effective moment and if you've never seen it or you've never really been very interested but you like the idea of a an effective and kind of low-fi horror movie really recommend giving it a shot um we've had another remake of it in recent years and we've also had a ton of other found footage type movies and I think they've steadily gotten less impressive so I would suggest if you want to get back to something that I would say is the source of a lot of this, the the last twenty years of found footage movies, go and have a look at the Blair Witch Project because it, it is a great experience. It's not everyone's cup of tea, but it's definitely an awesome uh, production. So that uh, so I've added a couple into the, into the the journey before Dawn of the Dead, but I think that's the one that I'll cover next. So. Dawn of the Dead, Zack Snyder, now that we've worked that out, <laughs> who is, of course, most recently known for the Justice League movie and Batman versus Superman, and uh, he also did Watchmen. So he's had some much higher kind of budget and, and more mainstream, I suppose, tentpole features of, of, in recent years. But Dawn of the Dead was probably something that was a bit more middle of the road. And it was a remake of uh, George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead uh, from, I think, the late 70s. I couldn't tell you the year, I think maybe 78. And he uh, did a great job, I think, in kind of bringing it into the, the 21st century. It, it starts off with a bang, but it's also the way that the, the start scene and the end scene uh, are cut together and edited. They've, they've got a great song in the background. The, the start has a Johnny Cash song, and it's just interspersed with news reports and sort of the, the general feeling of just quiet that you can see where people don't understand what this is, it's basically a, a zombie outbreak, and regular life very, very quickly turns to crap. Uh, the, the main character is a nurse uh, who is working I think, in the emergency ward at one of the... Well, it's a fairly small town kind of hospital. And it starts off fairly normally, but you see someone coming in with bite wounds. So you, of course, go, ah. <laughs> and then there's there's a lot of moments where you're not sure what's happening, and then they might be, like, false jump scares just to keep you on the edge of your seat. But once it takes off, it's it's pretty much straight away because the zombies, and this is to differ from... I guess what many people would see is the classic zombie, which kind of walks very slowly, and the the dangerous part of them is that they walk en masse, so you really just have to avoid getting in the way of a a huge horde of zombies. But the the zombies in Dawn of the Dead run, (laughs) and they run at flat knacker, as they say. So that is a really good twist on the idea, because it's a pretty terrifying... Uh, vision to have uh, a half-ripped-apart zombie bottling down the path at you, and and especially en masse. So in a roundabout way, uh, she gets caught up in the breakdown of of this area that she lives in, Uh, first through some of the the neighbours in the street, and then her own husband, and she has to pretty much just hot-foot it out of there. And then she gets uh, involved in a car accident and basically is found by a couple of other survivors they make their way to a shopping center a shopping mall that being I guess the main setting for most of the movie then so there's a bunch of characters that are all part of the the group of survivors that have made their way there and then you I guess you see a little bit of a people fighting for the control, I guess, the the hierarchy. They want to create a bit of a, well, you do as you're told. So there's the security guards that already work at the shops that feel that they should have authority. Uh, You have several other more reasonable people. (laughs) You have a, a cop who's there and he's trying to keep some kind of order, but he's still not really very sure of what to do there's yeah so it's a it 's a bit of an assortment of characters, and then you 've got a few more humorous characters and you 've got a few that I guess you pretty much know they 're going to die sadly because you need that fodder sounds really disconnected, but it 's kind of true and through and through uh I guess different events you know zombies getting into some of the shops through through you know through rear entries or delivery bays. Some of them get hurt, some of them get killed. There's a bit of a distressing part where there is a baby due and the mother gets bitten. Um, so, of course, it seemed like a bit of a, I don't know, it seemed like a bit of a, I don't I can't think of the word. <laughs> it just seemed like the wrong kind of thing to do to have a, a zombie baby born and it's, it's pretty fake and you can kind of look past it, but at the time I was like, ah, it's not really necessary. So, look, if you if you get a bit squeamish with seeing uh, babies or kids sort of hurt or, um, I guess, twisted ideas involving them, you might want to f- skip that, that part at least when you know it's coming because you'll know when it's coming because there's a birth involved. So, yeah, aside from that, which was probably a bit of a distasteful moment, they they slowly... Formulate an idea to armour up a couple of the the customer sort of courtesy buses and try to get out of there and get to an island uh, off just off the coast or, or one of the inland lakes. Not entirely sure which area it's set in. It's probably something I should look into to uh, to actually have some knowledge because it could be the Great Lake Lakes if they're up near Chicago. But then again, I'm just completely guessing. So <laughs> uh, yeah, but look, I guess. Like I said, the, the most impressive part of the Dawn of the Dead remake is I like the way it's edited, put together. I like that it's been brought up into, I mean, it, you watch it now and it will seem old. It's now 15 years old, so it's going to be dated, especially for you younger folk who, who want to check it out. But to me, that was kind of at the prime. <laughs> Everyone else was enjoying that kind of movie, and and that's definitely one that stuck with me. It put me onto uh, the, the metal band Disturbed, which is a fairly mainstream American metal band, but they had a really cool song uh, used in the credits, and I really wanted to know what that was. So they put me onto them. It also did give me a bit of a, a glimpse at Johnny Cash, which was something I got into probably a little later on. And I started to appreciate that style of music as well. Um, but also just there was a certain level of cool to the way that it was done. It was just a cool movie. And Eero uh, and myself, we, I think we saw it three times. I think he may have seen it four, but I saw it three times with him, I think, in, in tow. <laughs> so it was definitely one for the books. So Event Horizon and Dawn of the Dead got themselves a couple of cinema, uh, repeat cinema goers. So the next one that I was going to bring up is probably The Hills Have Eyes, I would say. That was one that's still a few years back, um, and that's a remake of a Wes Craven movie, I think from the the mid to late 70s as well, The Hills Have Eyes, and I think there was a sequel as well. So all of these I've not seen. I've just seen the remake, so that's why I decided to to speak about them. Uh, The Hills Have Eyes is a cool little kind of... Twist on some of the ideas about nuclear testing through the 50s, and it's set in a you know wide open desert like space out in the middle of nowhere where they've been conducting uh, nuclear testing back in the 50s and the 60s. People who have refused to leave where they were living have been affected by radiation, and so you've got some mutated. Uh, people, kind of scavenger-type people, living in the foothills and in caves throughout these areas, and then, as it turns out, also living in the uh, model town. You know, they often build a replica town in the middle of these test sites to assess the damage that they can wrought with these with these weapons. So, it turns out some of the the mutants uh, are living in the town as well, and it's it's all very kind of twisted, very warped idea, uh, particularly seeing you know, a massive headed guy sitting in a rocking chair in one of these 50s houses watching a very generic kind of kids' TV show from the time on loop. Um, but it's got some great imagery like that, and it makes you think of you know, Fallout, which is a much more recent game, and uh, some of those classic, I guess, sci-fi stories and um incredible sort of incredible tales from the, the pulp comics of the 50s and 60s as well. It's got that kind of feel to it, um, but there's a family travelling through that area with their their caravan and sort of like an extended family You've got the, the older mum and dad, um, two of their daughters and their son, one of the daughters is married so she's got her husband and her baby with her as well uh, and they've got a couple of dogs and I think they're called Beauty and Beast. And they're all journeying through this this desert area, I think, on their way to, to somewhere else. And they're purposely given the wrong instructions by a gas station attendant along their way. And it takes them off the the main highway and onto this fairly rough, unmade section where they think it's a shortcut. Whereas in fact it's leading them into this basin uh, in the desert where There's a heap of abandoned cars and also a lot of effects of people that have uh, been taken beforehand. Basically, it seems that the people just toy with them, have fun, uh, kill them, perhaps assault them. And look, it's a little upsetting at the start. There's some stuff that you could say is unnecessary, but it does make your toes curl. It makes your stomach knot up and it makes you very uncomfortable. And I guess, if you don't mind that, it it makes for a very effective horror movie because it's not just a a gore fest or not just a kind of classic sort of hack and slash fest it actually has there's a real sense of uh, danger there for well in this case the baby because the baby is taken by these these mutants so as soon as that happens the entire mood is just very serious and, of course, on your first watching, it can be a little distressing because you don't know how it's gonna be. I recall on the first viewing, my stomach was in knots uh, until almost the very end. From that point, it sort of slowly built to that point, and then it's, uh, everything, you know, the proverbial hit the fan, and the baby was taken, and my stomach was then left in a real state until almost the end of the movie. Obviously, subsequent watches, you know what happens, so it's not the same. So, look, again, if you don't like seeing that kind of stuff happen to kids, it might be one to miss on this occasion. But uh, it's also, it, it is an effective horror. So if you do enjoy that and you want to see what happens and you haven't seen it before, have a look. It's, it's, uh, it is definitely effective. I think all the performances were really good. I uh, also think that the dogs actually play a really good part. You really feel for the, the dogs in it. Um, I know it sounds a bit funny, but I think they're actually a really imperative part of the movie and kind of give it a little bit of heart. Uh, but I feel that all the bit players in, in the movie played a really effective role. And so even though, yes, it's a fairly small kind of, it doesn't have a big cast because of the setting. There's no one out there. It's just the family, the gas station attendant, and then this group of, of mutants. So there's not a whole heap of people to, to worry about, but they're all affected. They really hold their ground and hold their own uh, and build the story um, as a whole. So that's one I'd highly recommend, if you don't mind that little bit of squeamishness with the the stakes, I guess, with the stakes being so high. Um, There's a real sense of disquiet just before that section when you realize everything is going south big time. And that's probably the moment where you really, it's an effective horror That's probably the biggest moment. Everything goes south very, very quickly. And uh, you sort of wait with a very, very tense... uh, (laughs) Everything's holding on to the seat um, until the end of that that particular section. So you sort of can take a breath after about 10, 15 minutes there. But it's it's spooky. Uh, The next movie that I was going to move on to... So, I mean, these are all... I I recommend them all. But the next one I was going to talk about was Quarantine. It's... uh, a remake of a Spanish film called Wreck. There were a couple of Wreck uh, movies and I think there's also been two Quarantine movies, which I think have basically remade the first and second Spanish movies. Um, Perhaps even with the assistance of the director. Pardon me, by the way. Um, So, Wreck and Quarantine, but in this case I'm going to be talking about Quarantine. It's set in an apartment building for most part. There's a I guess a small town kind of uh, reporting team uh, doing a bit of a feature on the fire department in the town. And so there's a lady uh, in the main role, she's the main role, and she's the reporter, uh, sort of spending the day, sort of a day on a day in the life of the, the fireys from, from this particular town. And they hang out, they go to a few kind of standard emergencies. Um, they have a bit of a laugh back at the, the fire station they talk about some of the things they do. That's all a bit boring, but I think that maybe that's done on purpose to elevate the, the shock uh, when it does kind of go south as well. So this is a, another found footage style movie where you're seeing it through the eyes of the cameraman uh, who's shooting this uh, report on the is. So they then attend an apartment block uh, building with the firefighters, after some reports came in, um, they don't really know what they're up against, other than perhaps there's uh, some sick people uh, in the apartment. It kind of It all happens very quickly. and there's a few things I w- would love to just say, but I don't want to ruin the experience if you have never seen it before and are kind of thinking about trying a few of these horror movies. So there's a, a moment that really sets everything off, because it's so sudden and so unexpected, it really takes your breath away, and kind of then that's the tone, the tone has changed from firstly this kind of a uh, bit ho-hum, procedural kind of doco thing, it's, it's not amazingly acted at the start, um, but I think that that brings in the stark contrast, this change of tone when everything uh, gets serious. So something happens, and then the entire vibe is different. So from that point on, it's like a steadily speeding up train um, towards the end. And the, the part that happens right at the end of the movie is very effective because it doesn't actually give you any answers, really. It just leaves it, and it's a, you're at the height of tension, and it's dark, and you're only seeing things with the night vision. So, of course, that everything looks uh, a bit freaky in night vision anyway. So you see a hint of something going on at the very top level of the apartments. Uh, but you don't ever actually get a real full, detailed explanation of, of what's happened. And I think that adds to the sense of, like, oh, what the hell has just happened here. It was actually really effective. I went and saw that with, uh, with my partner on its release date, I think, and it happened to be her birthday. So we talked about it and said, yep, yeah, let's go and see that, and it was that was fantastic. We had a great time, obviously holding heads the entire time, so it was a good excuse. But that uh, that was really good. We I don't think we were really driven to see the second one. Uh, sequels have that habit of sometimes being a little underwhelming and it's, it's awful when you wreck the original experience. Um, just to quickly go off topic for a moment, Taken is definitely one of those examples where the first one is almost a, a, almost a flawless action movie. It, it showed a bit of a Liam Neeson uh, renaissance, him coming back as a bit of a, a serious action figure and also a bit of an offbeat kind of character. But also yeah, a fairly low-budget but hard-hitting kind of edgy thriller. And I think that's what it lost over the subsequent two sequels. I think it lost the edginess because the theme in the first one was, was pretty bad. I mean, they stole his daughter. They were going to sell her as a, a, essentially a sex slave um, for, because of her virginity and to the highest bidder. So it's it's an awful situation to... And he had to basically chase her down with a certain time frame before he lost all contact. So the stakes are immensely high, and I guess it was always going to be hard to follow it up. And, look, not to harp on about that, but that's where I think Taken made that mistake. There should never have been sequels to it. I think the first one was effective, and we should have left it lie. So same could be said for some of these horror movies. Uh... Quarantine, I haven't seen Wreck 2, so I couldn't tell you. Uh, Quarantine 2, I guess I'm just not interested in seeing the follow-up. I think the first one was effective enough. Blair Witch, same thing could be said. Dawn of the Dead movies, look, there, there are several different uh, zombie movies, and George, the Ramiro, when he was making them, often made them as statements against political, uh, the political climate at the time and also some of the things that people were protesting against or a symbolism against some of the injustices going on. So there's, there was quite a lot more under the surface, not just a, a sort of a scary movie. And, and maybe the same could be said for some of the other films out there. It's offered a little bit of uh, social and political commentary or I guess just trying to make a point about something. Uh, But it's not so clear in some either. So I I guess to get back to my point, without just being too blase, some of these movies are definitely better as a standalone experience. So I think Quarantine is one of those. I think Blair Witch is definitely one of those. Uh, Dawn of the Dead, like I said, that's a series, and I think that's the way it, it works. That's fine. The Thing, I think that that was better standalone. They did remake it. Uh, I enjoyed the remake, it was, like a, it was like a reboot but also a prequel uh, because it did tell the events that happen kind of immediately before the original, the thing and it gives you that perspective but because the tone and even some of the characters are so similar to the original you can't help but feel that it's essentially a remake as well So it just gives them the opportunity to explore the same creature, almost the same setting, with a group of people that not mimic, but there are some key ones that are mimicking the original. I really liked it still. Um, Joel Edgerton was kind of like the Kurt Russell character, so to speak. Uh, There was a, a female lead. Unfortunately, I can never remember the names of these lovely people when it comes to the crunch. But she has been in several, she's a bit of a scream queen of of late, I think her name is Mary. I just can't think of her surname. She's been in Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, she was in The Thing, I think she was in several other horrors. She was also in uh, Fargo and was Ewan McGregor's, uh, or one of the twins that Ewan McGregor plays. The love interest, I think, of his character and of course the person he started seeing when he wasn't with his wife so I just can't think of her sooner so she's in it she actually does play a great role she does a good job Uh, there's some great other actors in there as well that that make a a big sort of difference to the whole piece it's anchored in really well Um, but it's sort of it's almost unnecessary so I go back to saying I was more than happy with the thing same with Event Horizon we certainly didn't need a number 2 and I'm believe they didn't make one. Uh, so some of these horror movies just work well. I think perhaps in the case of, say, the the, the Elm, Nightmare on Elm Street's um, Friday the 13th and Halloween, sequels can work there because they often are kind of beyond getting killed or something very simple brings them back. And that's why they've been able to make eight sequels um, and kind of turn them into one of those never-dying uh movie uh movie bad guys very iconic you know they they've sort of stuck in the the audience psyche and become very iconic so Jason Voorhees and Mike Myers and um Freddy of course are all Freddy Krueger that's it uh, are all part of you know the the modern kind of horror movie psyche that we have so the the remake of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street was also, I would say, it was unnecessary. But I did see it, uh, and I felt that it was it was played out well. I just think it was a bit dark, uh, maybe for the kind of tone that I would have thought maybe a Nightmare on Elm Street went for. I, I thought it kind of goes for a little bit more of a black comedy, dark comedy kind of feel sometimes. So even though it's it's really gross and there's some some real. <laughs> Gore moments; it still has a really dark kind of tinge of humour. I don't feel that the remake really had that. It was just pretty serious horror, straight up horror. Um, there are there are also several others. Um, I wouldn't call Piranha a horror in that much sense of a word, but I guess in a lot of ways it was just uh, a very quirky one. Bit of a a bit of a well, I'll say piss take in this instance. A bit of a piss take on some of the genres of like on Jaws and things like that, but it was actually really enjoyable as well. I think uh, the, the actors that they got to portray some of the characters did a really great job, they just had fun with it, just you know, just enjoyed it, <laughs> got a bit silly and, and had fun. So, that's another one. I didn't see Piranha 3 Double D, you get that. <laughs> I saw Piranha 3D, so I would definitely start with that one and end with that one. It's another one that didn't need a remake. So they, that's a whole bunch of different horrors from that year. I already spoke about my particular favorites and they probably still stand up there as my favorites. They continue to, to make remakes of a lot of them and, and whether or not I'll jump in and have a look at any of them, I, I'm not sure. I've sort of, haven't watched as many horrors in the last few years. Probably the couple that I've seen that uh, still stand out as being effective as well was uh, one called Mama, which was uh, a tale of a couple of children that end up being, I think the mother dies and they're left to sort of fend for themselves in a house that's sort of out on the, uh, out in the middle of the forest. And they mysteriously have been looked after for quite a long time too, by something. And eventually the uncle and his girlfriend get custody of the girls Uh, but when you first are introduced to them they're very very scary little characters they they run around and leap all over the furniture and everything because they've essentially regressed a little bit into animal-like behavior they're very dirty they're all blackened so they look quite scary but it's clear that they're not malnourished by too much and they've emotionally not too uh, damaged either, so it becomes obvious that something has been responsible for their care while they've been living in this house in the middle of nowhere, with no one knowing what had happened to their mum. So it's a bit of a a disconcerting start anyway, just, I guess, imagining that setting. It turns out that there's an entity, some sort of uh, supernatural entity, that they call Mama, that, that floats around, is fiercely jealous of the the care that the uncle and the girlfriend now have of the girls and essentially wants them back. And so there's some great creep-out moments there because, yes, it's supernatural and not everybody gets into that idea. Um, it could be easily written off. But if it's done well, it can be a really effective thriller and, and there's definitely some great scare moments in it. And I think even just the performance of the, the children at the start are enough to kind of set you off balance a little bit. And so that makes the, the way that the, the mama character is used more effective. And so that, that was definitely very enjoyable. There was also Lights Out. Lights Out is, a, is pretty recent, fairly recent, last few years, where it is that very simple idea that is also a great idea, where when the lights are out, this thing can get you. Lights are on, they're not there. Lights are off, all of a sudden it's gotten closer. It's it's a very effective and very simple kind of trick to use. And even in the preview, they're able to show you very easily what happens by just having a quick section there where you can see the shadow over in a doorway. They turn the light on. There's nothing there. They turn the light off. The shadow's about halfway across the room. Turn the light on. Not there. Turn the light off again. It's right there in front of the face and then scares the crap out of you. Um, now, I can't remember the plot line, which is not going to help anybody else. But all I can say is that I'd highly recommend it because it was an enjoyable movie. It had an effective little plot device and it was, it was an effective horror, without being one of those ones where you walk away feeling permanently freaked out. It, uh, there was a funny incident when we were watching it at home where unfortunately my daughter was in another room and the lights actually went out during the movie. And it was just one of those power dips where everything goes off for you know, a split second. But she already knew, she wasn't watching the movie, but she knew what we were watching and the concept from the lights out, the title, and then all of a sudden, lights are out, came back on. And of course, it scared the absolute crap out of her. And so it wasn't a great moment and it made, made things a little bit harder to move on and, and, you know, not want to put that movie back on for the time being. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly, that concept, it just shows you how effective the concept is. In the moment, it was very effective. So that's also one I'd highly recommend. Um, so probably the last one that I was going to talk about uh, at this stage was the Martyrs movie. There was a French wave of new horror that started to come about again in the, the mid to late, I guess you just call them the noughties, um, and then perhaps in the early 2010s where they were either remaking or they were doing some ultra-low budget but extremely effective and extremely gory dark kind of French horror movies. And they received mixed receptions but they were always very, very intense. Um, There were rape revenge movies. There were... um, This one is a bit hard to, to kind of focus on martyrs. To, it's hard to say what it is. it started and I think the shift into there's a shift in tone at a stage of the movie that really becomes something other than a horror. It's a horrific movie at that stage and it's extremely disturbing, but it ceases to be the same kind of horror it becomes something else, a sort of psychologically damaging um, I don't know where you feel like you shouldn't be watching it anymore. Uh, there was another movie, which I'll mention after that, that, that also made me feel the same way, and I wouldn't have said that was a horror either. So, so Martyrs, uh, Now I've got to try and remember the plot line in that. This is where a little bit of research beforehand will go a long way, but look, you know, here I am, I'm doing episode 13 finally. I'm just going to keep wigging it. So, Martyrs is a, a French horror movie. It's part of this new wave. It... Uh, I think it deals with uh, a family and it sort of shows a bit of a a scene of this family and they they seem to be very normal. They're going about their day to day, they're having breakfast together, there's like two kids uh, and the parents, they're teenage kids and the parents. They get along really well, they're having a laugh, it's a nice sort of middle class house. Everything seems really, really normal. Uh, and then all of a sudden, everything goes bad and a strange woman who's frantic and hysterical kills all of them uh, and of course you're thinking she's just a psycho or she's the the bad guy uh, so to speak and then it slowly starts to reveal that all is not what it seemed from that first sort of scene, that first uh, group of scenes. She's clearly suffered at the hands of at least one or a couple of, of that family, perhaps the parents. Um, and she has come back to exact revenge on them. And it slowly works its way because it starts off where she's basically uh, take it in and there's some recovery needed but she keeps having visions of these really scary uh, creatures. And you're not entirely sure what's going on, there's just a really scary creature that keeps kind of haunting her uh, at night in her room when she's trying to lie there and get some sleep, it's just everywhere. She has dreams about this other one that's got like a, a metal kind of plate and rim all riveted into her head and the, the, cut, the, the way that they use the gore in it is extremely toe-curlingly intense and uh, it's something, it's definitely not for the squeamish and faint of heart, it's, it's one that really takes a strong constitution, I think, so this one's for the hardcore horror freaks out there who like a bit of intensity, so th- through the, the course of the movie, it changes shape from, first of all, this revenge movie, to kind of like a, a bit more of a haunting movie, it had some similarities to Mama in that respect, the... The, the figure, the scary figure that's running around the room and, and freaking the crap out of everybody um, and then it changed shape again where there's another character that suddenly sort of becomes the main character and she goes in and discovers some of what's been going on and there's a, a dungeon set up under this house where the family were living and were then murdered where they slowly break down the will of the people that they take, that they capture, and it's almost like a test to see, uh, I think, both their mental, physical and emotional, spiritual strength, and it's so methodically done, You really starts to become hard-watching, and without going into too much detail, there's there's pretty much daily beatings, there's not a lot to eat, uh, and there's not a lot explained, it just is relentless for quite a while. And you're starting to think, well, what is the point? I don't understand the point of where this is going. But ultimately they're deciding whether this person would be an ideal, I'm guessing, martyr of the title. Where they want to they want to capture a moment between life and death where somebody has transcended all of those human feelings and human emotions and All of those things, and they're somewhere between life and death, so they can somehow understand death and uh, not fear it as much. I'm fairly sure that's the gist of it. So uh, grotesquely, for the the now main character who's gone through all of this slow breakdown, her mind, body, and soul, she is then skinned alive in a flotation tank or. She's kept in a flotation tank after it at least. Uh, and most, I think, die at that stage where she's able to actually stay alive for longer and all these rich people come in for reviewing. Now, a lot of them are, are older and so that gives that explanation to why they're there and this, it's kind of like a secret organisation where... So at the start you're thinking it's some really sick sort of... Mass murderer, or uh, kind of like a sexual cult, or something. Where I think it's actually this organization where they are trying, they feel like it's a justified science in trying to reach this point of like ascendancy just before death, and they uh, want to study that look on her face as she's put up uh, as an offering, I guess and to watch her experience, to try and engage her experience as she slowly passes on. And it's a horrendously disturbing moment to think someone, A, thought of it as a concept, and B, even was able to execute it and get the funding for it. It's, it really is very disturbing. But I have to say it's also extremely well done. So I can see why this French horror resurgency got traction in the first place because there seemed to be a lot more class, a lot more quality to it and what they were putting out than perhaps a lot of other studios, a lot of other countries. So ultimately I would say I respect the movie for what it achieved. I can't say I liked it because there was nothing to like or enjoy about it. It was, it was horrific. Uh, then referring to the other movie that I would say is not a... Straight up horror, but it evoked the same feeling where you, you just don't feel like you should be watching anymore. You just think, well, should I really be watching this? It's not giving me any feeling of appreciation. It's certainly not something I'm enjoying, and I'm kind of losing interest in the story. And that was this uh, it was called Snowtown, and it's an Australian movie based on the events that happened over in South Australia uh, back in the 90s. I think with the uh, bodies in the barrel sort of uh, mysteries and they did end up convicting uh, several people over them. But the way that they created this movie was, was deeply unsettling. I think the guy who played the main character, the I guess the stepfather that comes into the, the situation, into the household, he plays a fantastic part because part of him is, is a really nice guy, a really friendly Aussie bloke who just likes a beer and a barbecue. Uh, there's this other persona you start to see in the way that he uses his, his body language, but also his eyes, the way he holds himself, where you think, I think this guy's a mess, and I think he's unhinged, and I'm not quite sure where this is going to go. Um, and through, a, I guess, a mixture of events, but also just a very clearly a psychopath, um, there's one part in it where he has his crony I can only think of that as a word because the guy doesn't really ever say anything. He just seems like he perhaps has a very low IQ and he's very easily influenced and just does as he's told. Uh, he's strangling uh, one of the, I guess we'd say, one of his stepsons, um, uh, slowly to death, and he's caked in blood because he's been beaten into within an inch of his life but they are now methodically strangling him and slowly sort of choking the death out of him but waiting until he's almost gone and then letting him breathe again. And that goes on and on and on and on. Much longer than... I mean, you expect to see certain scenes but this goes probably twice as long as you would hope and twice as long as you think it should. And I'm guessing it was an intentional move to kind of get those feelings out of the viewer but at the same time, it really was extremely intense and really uh, sort of upsetting to watch. So uh, not one that I would <laughs> highly recommend. I think as a in the art of filmmaking, definitely one to recommend just to have a watch. But once you get to that bit, I'd definitely skip over it unless you, you've got a tough head for, for that kind of stuff. So that's Snowtown. Now, I think that brings us to the end of the uh, horror part Two ...and episode 13. It's been great catching up. Uh, This hasn't been quite as long as some of the others that I've done... ...but normally about an hour that I do. I am coming to the end of my recording time, though. So it's been great catching up. Look, if you would like to send me anything... ...get in touch with me, Swamp Bastard Guitars, on Instagram. Also, uh, the Master of None podcast at gmail.com. If you would like me to talk about anything particular... Uh, give you my my thoughts on anything, Uh, bring up a conversation point, anything at all. Tell me a story that I can relay to to the listeners. Please feel free. I'd love to hear from you. Um, And yeah, I'm hoping to grow this. I think it's one of those ones where it's probably a very select group of people that would perhaps enjoy it, just listen to the one person talking. But look, if you've spent the time to listen to it and it gives you any sense of you know, relaxation or interest or uh, enjoyment, I, I think I might have said that. I'm not sure. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope to join you very soon for episode 14. And I'll talk about what that's going to be on the day. All right? Take care, everybody, and I'll talk to you soon. It was, right. and yeah, see you later. See ya. Bye.